ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೆ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲರಮನಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಟುಡೇ ಐಮ್ ಗೋಯಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಟಾಕಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ಬರ್ಸ್ ಇಲೆವೆನ್ ಆಫ್ ಉಲುಜು ನಾಪ್ಟು ಅನ್ ಬಂಧಮ್ ಭಗವಾನ್ ಕಂಪೋಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಬರ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ಅ ಸರ್ಟನ್ ಕಾಂಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಕಾಂಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಇನ್ ವಿಚ್ ಯು ಕಂಪೋಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಇಸ್ ರಿಗಾರ್ಡಿಂಗ್ ದ ಟೂ ಬರ್ತಿ ಬರ್ಸಸ್ ದಟ್ ಹಿ ರೋಟ್ ಮೆನಿ ಇಯರ್ಸ್ ಅರ್ಲಿಯರ್ ದಟ್ ಈಸ್ ಹಿ ಪ್ರಾಬ್ಲಿ ಕಂಪೋಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಬರ್ಸ್ around about 1930 or so but the two birthday verses he composed in 1912 when his uh devotees first celebrated his his jayanti or birthday um so to give a background context i will first um read the meaning of the two birthday verses um what uh what he wrote in the first of the two birthday verses is um um pirandu but sorry pirandanal edo uh whatever is birthday uh uh peru vira save you he addresses the devotees you who make a great celebration um pirandu evan nam uh andrew peni uh perandu irital indru endrum ondrai uh ilahu uh porolil peranda andrei perantanal arm um uh that means only that day when carefully investigating where we were born we are born in the substance in poro poro means the real substance or vastu um which always shines as one without uh, being born and dying that day only that day is the birthday the real birthday so bhagwan in in this um in this verse he's correcting our right dear but the birth of the body is our real birthday our real birthday is only that day when we are born in the real substance the substance he refers to here poral that refers to our our own real nature what we actually are the pure awareness i am so uh, the implication is only when we investigate ourselves and thereby know ourselves as we actually are and knowing ourselves as we actually are means being as we actually are only that is the real birthday the birth of this body is not at all the real birthday and he says about that um that real substance poral uh, it always shines as one uh without being born and dying when he says it shines as one he implies it shines as the only one it is the one and only reality uh, and it, it is one without a second for it there's no other thing um and uh, because it alone is what is real it never is never born it never comes into existence and it never dies it never ceases to exist so that alone is what is real and therefore being um being born in that or being born as that is the real birthday is what he's saying here um in other words when we investigate ourselves we we thereby merge back into the source from which we have risen ego is thereby destroyed and we remain as we always actually are that eternal 
uh, ever unborn and ever undying reality or real substance. <clears throat> and then in the second verse, he uh, he sang, um, "Pirandanal enum pirapuku arade." Oh, Aradu, sorry. Pirandanal utsubame penal irinda pinatiku alankaricum pepu endre tane unandu odungal tane unabu. That means. Um, uh, Endre literally means saying, but it implies here understanding. Understanding, uh, I mean, quotation, not weeping for, for birth, even on birthday, or instead of weeping for, uh, for one's birth, even on the birthday, um, <coughs> cherishing the birthday as a festival is infatuation is is he's it's a comparison but he he doesn't give it to he doesn't say like he says it is the infatuation of um adorning a dead corpse that is when a body when a person has died we don't decorate <laughs> their corpse and celebrate a birthday being born in this body in effect we are dying to our real nature so celebrating our birthday is like decorating and celebrating, uh, uh, adorning and, and uh, decorating a, a corpse. Um, so understanding that, um, subsiding only subsiding uh, by being aware of. Our, well, he doesn't say by being aware. Only subsiding, being aware of oneself, is awareness. In other words. When we know what we actually are, when we're aware of ourselves as we actually are, we will thereby subside. That, that is, we will cease rising as ego. And that state of the, uh, not rising as ego is the real awareness. That is the, um, that is, uh, the, um, that is what is that is the real awareness. That is being aware of ourselves as I am this body, and consequently being aware of so many other things. That is a mere dream. It is not the real awareness. The real awareness is, the, uh, is that state in which we are aware of nothing other than ourselves, having subsided back into the source from which we rose. <clears throat> so these are the two verses that Bhagavan composed in 1912. Many years later. Um, while discussing the meaning and implication of these two verses with Lakshman Sharma, Bhagavan explained what he meant in the first verse, the first of those two verses, um, when he said, Pirandadu, uh, sorry, Pirandu uh, Iritel Indru Indrum Ondrai Ilahu Porolil uh, Pirandadu. That is, uh, being born in Porol. Uh, uh, one real substance which always shines as uh, as one without being born and dying. What what he meant by that, he explained this to Lakshman Sharma, and Lakshman Sharma wrote a Sanskrit verse in which he summarized Bhagavan's explanation. And when he composed that Sanskrit verse, he showed it to Bhagavan, 
and Bhagavan at once uh, expressed the same idea in a Tamil verse, namely this verse that is now verse 11 of uh, Uludunapto Anabandam. What he says in this verse, he begins by asking a question, as he did in the first of those two birthday verses. But in the first of those two birthday verses, the question he asked was, um, saying, no, just go back to it. He, he asked, Perantanaledo, whatever is birthday. But in this verse, what he, he begins with the question, Perantadu Eban. Uh, that means who was born? That was who was really born is what he's saying. Um, and he answers it. Tan Brahma Mulate Perandadu Eban Eban Nan Andrew Paini Pirandan Avane Pirandan. That means. Um, uh, carefully investigating where I was born, one who was born in one source, Brahman, he alone is one who was born. So the one who only being born in our source, in Brahman, in the, what he referred to in, the pre, in, the, in that first of the two birthday verses as Porol, in, in other words, what we actually are, being born in, in and as what we actually are, that only one who is born thus is one who is truly born, is the implication. Abhanitam, uh, uh, he is eternal. Uh, Munisan, the Lord of Sages. Uh, I, I mean, Bhagavan puts it very nicely. Aban, uh, sorry, Naban Naban, Aban Dinamum Nadu. That means. Uh, <coughs> um, Naban Naban Aban Dinamum means um, he is daily new, new. It literally means new, new. That means he's ever new and ever fresh. Uh, Nadu means investigate. So, what Bhagavan is saying here, but uh, only one who is born in one source, namely Brahman, uh, by investigate, by carefully investigating, where was I born? Is um, is one who is who who was really born? He is eternal, eternal here. When he says nitam, nitam doesn't mean that we become eternal when we attain liberation. Nitam means eternal. It uh, means beyond time. But uh, we that is. What is truly eternal is that which existed before time, during time, and after time. That is that that which transcends all limitations of time. That is truly being eternal. So Bhagavan often emphasized this, but liberation is eternal. That doesn't mean that once we attain liberation, we will ever be liberated. It doesn't just mean that. It means that we have we are even now we are liberated. Only because we have risen as ego, we seem to be in bondage. But this bondage is unreal. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that we are eternally liberated. So he is eternal. He is Munisam, the Lord of all Munis, all, all sages. Uh, he is daily new, new. That is, that, um, that uh, <clears throat> Brahman, our, our source, what we actually are, is something that is not 
um, but doesn't age with uh, time. Or I mean, well, it's beyond time, so there's no question of it aging. It's it's ageless and ever fresh awareness. I it's the ageless and ever fresh awareness. I am. Um, so it's beyond all time and therefore beyond all decay. So it's new. It's uh, new, new in the sense that it's ever fresh, and we can know that by investigating. That's why he ends with the word nadu. Nadu means investigate. What do we have to investigate? As he said, carefully investigating where was I born. Um, that is the word he uses for carefully investigate is um, 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 uh, painy. Painy means to, to, uh, 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 painy is uh, an adverbial participle of the uh, Verb um, um, of the verb painu, which it means cherishing, caring for, or knowing. And in this context, therefore, it implies uh, carefully, tenderly, lovingly investigating or attending to. So carefully investigating uh, where was I, where, where I was born. When he says investigating where I was born, that is um, in in Tamil, he says. Um, um Perandu Evan um Nan um where I was born means uh where were we born? We were born the the place we were born is the source from which we have risen, in other words, Brahman. So by investigating the, our source, investigating our source means what we actually are, because what rises is ego. From where does ego rise? Only from that which exists prior to ego. What exists prior to ego is what exists eternally, namely our own uh, pure being, I am. So ego is the false awareness, I am this body. It rises or is born from the fundamental awareness, I am which is our very being, our existence. And it is such, I am is such it. It is pure being and pure awareness. That is the source from which we've risen. So when he says carefully investigating where I was born, it means carefully investigating our own fundamental awareness, I am, which is the source from which we have risen as ego, this false awareness, I am this body. Um, so um in 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 um in all these verses bhagavan is emphasizing the need for us to investigate what we actually are or to investigate the source from which we've risen which amounts to the same because the source from which we have risen is itself what we actually are uh, namely satchit the pure existence awareness i am so only by investigating that will we subside and when we will subside means is subside completely dissolve back into our source when we dissolve back into our source we remain as we always actually are so that dissolving back into our source and being as we always actually are is what he refers to as being born in our source uh brahman um so i i think that's the 
the gist of that the main message of this verse again that, that is as in Bhagavan takes every opportunity to emphasize the need for us to investigate ourselves or to investigate the source from which we have risen because only by investigating the source from which we have risen will we as ego subside in such a way that we never rise again in other words will we dissolve and uh, cease to i mean dissolve completely and forever in our source the pure awareness i am um so does anyone have any questions about this verse or either of the two verses um that he wrote earlier uh, in the context of which he wrote this verse thank you michael um I don't know if um, you're able to see this. Um, Robert Boyer um, posted a message. Robert, do you, um, Robert Boyer, do you want to read your message? Okay. Um, I'm not able to hear Robert. I can't see him either. I don't know what happened to his computer. Um, so I'll let uh, Robert Delgish read it for him. Go ahead, Robert Delgish. Uh, you want to read Robert Boyer's statement? Yeah, Robert Boyer's comment. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, in my view, one key point of Advaita Vedanta is the theorem or axiom for all X and Y as X equals Y. That settles some arguments. However, there may be those that deny even the first order of logic theorem for some x, x equals x, or x does not equal x. That's where, I think that's where the statement ends. Descartes might have said, I think, therefore, there is something rather than nothing. Heidegger and Plato would probably agree that the fundamental question of metaphysics is why is there something rather than nothing? The answer must be in the mind of the questioner. But I make cheap talk, not being one of those. I just lost the person. Not being little help from it. Oh, we did get very little help from Aristotle. Aristotle's unmoved mover, who only thinks of himself. Um, anyway, I don't see a question there, but that's the statement that you wanted me to read. Okay. Um, I. It's a bit difficult for me to follow that. If it, is it, does that question appear in the chat? Because I don't see it in the chat. Well, it posted at nine or five a.m., but unfortunately, I'm not able to copy it and repost it. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I think that before you joined, usually. Okay. Ready. Yeah, yeah. So Michael, I, think it's a, I think it's a question of self-referencing. X equals yeah. X. X equals Y. Advaita says X equals Y. X equals we're all one. Advaita ultimately doesn't even say x equals y, because x and y are two right. two things. The, the basic principle of Advaita is ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So there is no second thing. But in the view of ourself as ego, there seem to be um many many things other than the one thing so there's one without a second seems to be not the case from the perspective of ego 
so since the ultimate truth is that what exists is one only without a second, the view of ourself as ego is a distorted view, an illusory view. We are seeing the one as many. So it is then necessary to say the many are actually just the one. But that is not the ultimate truth of Advaita. The ultimate truth of Advaita is there is only ever one. There never is any many. But it's only because from the perspective of ego, we see the one as many, we have to be told the many is one. So in that sense, that is the ultimate truth is of Advaita is X equals X. There's nothing other than X. But because we see otherness, multiplicity, which we can call Y, it has to be said that that Y is nothing other than X, the, the one thing that actually exists. Um, that's part of it. Regarding, um, regarding why there is something, not nothing, that is a question people love to ask that question. But actually, if we consider it carefully, that is a question for which there can never be any answer. Because why is there something not, uh, not nothing? We are asking why there is something. Why is looking for a reason or a cause? But that, that reason or cause must exist. It, so it, it's, uh, it's, to ask why something, why something exists rather than nothing exists is, is a, a question that cannot be answered. It is, it is, we all know it is a fact. Existence is a fact. What exists is more useful than asking why there is something rather than nothing. The more useful question, the question Bhagavan asks us, uh, asks us to consider is not why there is something, but what is that something that actually exists? What actually exists? Now we see all this multiplicity, but all this multiplicity is constantly, it appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. Whatever appears and disappears is impermanent. Therefore, it's not real. What is real must always exist and must always shine. What exists and shines eternally is only our own being, I am. So the, the ultimate brute fact, uh, the brute fact is a term they use in philosophy to mean something that... Um, is too basic to be explained. There's no explanation. It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate fact. But one ultimate fact is: I am. I exist. Why? Why? Why is that the one ultimate fact? Because we can reasonably doubt the existence of all other things. Other things seem to exist, but just because they seem to exist doesn't mean they actually exist. But we must actually exist because we are aware. In order to be aware, we must exist. So whether what we are aware of is real or illusory, as awareness, we are real. That is, we must exist as awareness. But the real awareness is one without a second. So the real awareness is not an awareness of anything. It is just pure awareness. The awareness that is aware of nothing other than its own being, I am. That is real awareness. Awareness of manyness is just 
a dream, an illusion, a fiction. It, it's not. It's not real because the, the many things we are aware of do not actually exist. So it seems to us we exist as a body and a world exists out there. But all these things do not actually exist. They merely seem to exist. But to us, they, it seems that they actually exist. So being aware of what doesn't actually exist, as if it actually exists, is not real awareness. So the one real awareness is the awareness I am. Um, regarding Descartes, some philosophers say that Descartes overstepped the mark when he said, I think, therefore I am. They say all he can legitimately say is, I think, therefore there is thinking. That is, that is, they assume they can be thinking without an I. But how can, who is the thinker of all thoughts? It's something that is aware of itself as I. So awareness is always aware of itself as I. That is, the I is the pronoun, the self-referential pronoun, the pronoun uh, that, that refers to that which, well, it's, it's the pronoun that refers to ourself, who are what is aware. So uh, I is the natural name of awareness. There cannot be thinking without awareness. That is, the thinking is just the thoughts appearing in something that is aware or in the view of something that is aware. So without I, there couldn't be thinking. But Bhagavan also commented, uh, well, Bhagavan's comment on Descartes saying, I think therefore I am, was recorded by Lakshman Sharma. What, what Bhagavan once said to Lakshman Sharma about that is, it is like if you, if, um, if there's a parade going through the town, some festival, and the king goes by on an elephant. But you refuse to believe that the king has, though, though you see the king going by on an elephant, you refuse to believe that the king goes by on an elephant until you see the footprints of the elephant on the road. That is, we don't need to think in order to know we are. We, that is, the awareness I am is fundamental. Thinking is something second to that. So we don't need thinking to know that we are. In sleep, we are not thinking but we still know what we are. So it is, um, it, it, according to Bhagavan, it's like trying to, it's, it's like convincing oneself that the elephant has gone past because you can see its footprints. But you don't need to see that because you've just seen the elephant going past. Uh, like that, the one thing that is obvious, the one thing that is self-evident, Swayam Prakasa, self-shining, is this awareness I am. We don't need thinking or anything else to know that we are. We know that is knowing that we are is is our very nature. Um, so it's it's uh, it's unnecessary to say I think therefore I am. I am therefore I am. That is we're clearly aware I am. That awareness I am is itself is our very nature, our very existence, our very being. So we don't need thinking to know what we are. But because for the mind of those who are outward going, they overlook the fact that though we cease to be aware of anything else in sleep, the one thing we continue to be aware of in sleep is our own existence. Of course, our own existence is not an object of awareness. Just by being, 
we know our being. As Bhagavan says, being oneself is knowing oneself in verse 26 of Upadesha India. So merely by because what we actually are is awareness, to know ourself, all we need to do is to be ourself. So we all there is never a moment when we do not know ourselves. In sleep, we know ourselves and we know nothing else whatsoever. In waking and dream, we know ourselves. But instead of knowing ourselves as just as ourselves, instead of knowing ourselves as just I am, we know ourselves as I am this body. That is, a, I am is our existence. On top of this existence, we have superimposed an identity. That is, we identify our existence with the existence of this body. So we have this false identity, I am this body. And once we have this false identity, I am this body, we are consequently aware of so many other things. So awareness of all of the body and all other things is superimposed upon the basic awareness I am. So thinking is a superimposition upon the fundamental awareness I am. So we don't need thinking to know that we are. But if our mind is always going outwards, as is the nature of the mind, if, um, we overlook the... Uh, the obvious fact that we do not cease to be aware in sleep. Um, and so we, 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 we think we know our existence because I think, but that is, we, even when we don't think, we still know our existence. So if, if Descartes was a, a great philosopher, a great scientist, but he had an outward looking mind. So he overlooked the fact but we know our existence even in the absence of thinking. And not only he overlooks this fact, the vast majority of philosophers overlook this fact. It is only in a Dvaita philosophy, but the, the fact of our awareness in sleep is so much emphasized. In all other philosophies, as far as I'm aware, they overlook this basic fact, but Awareness is not dependent upon thinking. Awareness continues whether there is thinking or whether there is no thinking. Robert, this uh, sleep uh, analogy somehow uh, I never understood because probably I'm using uh, mind to understand. So when I'm sleeping, I get the dreams or I don't have the dreams, but I... I <clears throat> I don't know how to understand that analogy well. Um, okay, it's it's not uh, an analogy. It's a it's a fact. But I will try. It's and explain a fact. It. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, are you? How many states are you aware of existing in? You're aware of waking. Now you're awake. You're aware there's another state called dream. But are you not clearly aware? But there's a third state in which you're not aware of anything. Yeah, Are you not I, aware of having been in a state in which you were not aware of anything? Yeah, yes. That state in which we are not aware of anything is called sleep. But the fact that we are aware of having been in that state means we were aware of being in that state. When we were asleep, we were aware. Not we weren't aware I am asleep. We were aware I am. Though we okay. were not aware of anything else, we were we never ceased to be aware of our own existence. Yeah. 
And one one more thing, Robert and, uh, is that oh, is we if we think about it carefully, we can understand this by reasoning. But if we want to understand this to be more firmly convinced, but we we do not cease to be aware in sleep, the way we can gain that conviction is by the practice of self-investigation. That is, in waking and dream, the more we attend to ourself, that is, to our own fundamental awareness, I am, the more clear it will be to us that this awareness, I am, is the fundamental reality, and that it continues and shines throughout all the three states. So that that clarity will come to the extent to which we go deep in this practice of self-investigation. Okay. You were about to ask something else? No, I think... Uh, so now what we are trying to understand, Robert, is... We are, <clears throat> we are trying to use the mind, the very thing we want to destroy, to understand this whole thing, right? So th there is no paradox there? No, but that is, we need to understand these things in order... That, that is, we need to understand these things in order to understand what is the practice. And we cannot do the practice without understanding what it is. So understanding is necessary, but... The practice will take us beyond understanding. Okay. I mean, just to be sure, we are using the mind to understand this, the very yes, thing we are but, trying to destroy. Yes, but we, we need to understand more about what is the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is the awareness that is going outwards. Bhagavan said that same awareness that is called mind or ego when going outwards, when that, same, when that awareness is turned back on itself, turn back within, it ceases to be mind or ego and becomes the pure awareness that it always actually is. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Dev Rajamudhi has recorded it very nicely in two places in Day by Day, where Bhagavan says, um, I can't remember the exact words, and how Dev Rajamudhi recorded it won't be the exact words of Bhagavan, but the idea is very clear. But when the when this the awareness that is turned outwards is called mind or ego. When that same awareness is turned inwards, that is what we actually are. That is the pure awareness I am. And, and what uh, uh, the the we we go along what mind is doing, and then we catch that the mind it is the mind, and then we turn it inward. That whole process is also done by mind itself, catching mind that it has gone outward and, and then pulling it inward? Yes, yes, yes. That is, what is aware of anything outward is mind. So only the mind can notice that it has gone outwards. But when we turn that mind that has gone outwards back within, to the extent to which we turn within, to that extent, mind subsides, and the pure awareness, which is the, the adhisthana, the adhara, the foundation of the mind, that alone remains shining. Gotcha. Thank you, Robert. Hmm. Uh, I think um, Ram meant to say Michael. There are a lot of Roberts around. So. <laughs> identity doesn't matter. We come right. here to yeah, go I, beyond I, identity. I meant to say Michael. I apologize. So call, call, I, me, call I, me anything you like. It makes no difference. <laughs> and um, just now I saw your note, uh, um, 
So Kumar, sorry for jumping oh, no in. Problem, I apologize. No problem. No problem. No problem. So um, let's. So my, my, Michael, so I have a question uh, regarding our verse. Um, um, so uh, some may ask, because Bhagwan said this, do we even need to celebrate his birthday? What would be your answer? Um, Bhagavan took every opportunity to push us within, to make us investigate ourselves, to prompt us to investigate ourselves. So when devotees wanted to celebrate his birthday, he took that as an opportunity to turn within, to, to, to write these verses in order to turn our mind back within to stop attending to the superficial outward appearances, like decorating a corpse, as he says, to turn back within and find out where was I born. So and the best way to celebrate Bhagavan's birthday is why, did, why, has, why was Bhagavan born in this world? Why did he appear in this world? It was to give us these teachings to tell us to turn back within. <clears throat> so the best way to celebrate Bhagavan's birthday is to turn back within and to subside back into our source. That is what we have to take from these verses. But most of us still lack sufficient love to be able to turn within and to remain permanently subsided in our source. So since we, are, since we have risen as ego and are looking outwards, it is not in... For us, Bhagavan is God and Guru and everything. So it is natural for us, out of our devotion for Bhagavan, to want to celebrate his birthday. So I don't think Bhagavan, Bhagavan is not averse to our, he's not telling us we shouldn't celebrate his birthday. He's trying to push us deeper. Yes, celebrate my birthday, but this is the proper way to celebrate it. Turn within and merge back into your source. Thank, thank you, Michael. But this outward celebration, this is all good devoted but we have to go deeper we shouldn't just be satisfied with all this puja and um japra and singing songs and everything this is all good it all helps to um keep the fire of devotion in our alive in our heart but we have to use that fire of devotion to direct it to its real target its real source back towards ourselves so bhagavan was not against any of the uh, more outward expressions of devotion, puja, japa, dhyana, all these things. Bhagavan is not opposed to that, but he's always trying to push us further, to go further. Because these are all preliminary. Right. If we've never been to primary school, we wouldn't have learned A, B, C, D, E, we wouldn't have learned to read, we wouldn't have learned to write, we wouldn't have learned mathematics and everything. And we wouldn't therefore be able to study a PhD level. When we're studying at PhD level, we are using the skills we learned in primary school, but we are not stopping with that. We are not going through A, B, C, D, E, F, G every day. We're not one times one is two, two times two is four, etc. We're not repeating that every day. Those are basic skills we learn. So the puja, the japa, and dhyana, these are basic things, but basic tools of, that are used in the preliminary, in the primary school of devotion. But at the advanced PhD level of devotion, the true devotion 
as Bhagavan says in verse 9 of Upadesha Undia, Baba Balatinal Bhavana Tita Sat Baba Tarutale Undipara Parabhakti Tatavam Undipara. The real nature of supreme devotion is, is uh, um, Sat Baba to Irutale. That means being in Sat Baba, being in the, the state of being. And how can we be in that state of being? Only Baba Balatinal, only by the strength of meditation. What meditation is he referring to? The meditation he talked about in the previous verse, which is Ananya Baba, meditation on nothing other than ourself. So he said that meditation on nothing other than ourself is best among all. Rather than meditating on God as something other than ourself, meditating on him as nothing other than ourself. In other words, meditating on him as I alone, that is best among all. And by the strength of that, uh, and what he goes on to say in verse 9 is, by the strength of that Ananya Baba, that meditation on him as nothing other than ourself, in other words, meditation on ourself alone, being in Sat Baba, in the state of being, which transcends bhavana, which transcends all mental activity, all meditation in the sense of mental activity, that is the supreme devotion. So Bhagavan is always trying to push us to go deeper. So Puja, Japra, and Dhyana, they all have their place. But we need to we shouldn't stop with that. That's all primary school stuff. We, 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 having come to Bhagavan, we've now come to the PhD class. So we now need to be investigating ourselves. That is our PhD, our doctoral research, investigating who am I. Thank you, Michael. Um, uh, this uh, one of our devotees who wishes to be anonymous, he's asking, he's asking you to define purul, um, yeah, the Tamil word purul. Okay, um, Bhagavan has yes. to, Bhagavan has defined what purul is in verse. Um, seven of Uludu Napadu. So I can't do better than um, uh, to, to, than the definition but given by Bhagavan. Um, that is, in this verse, he talks about Uluhu and Arivu. Uluhu means world, Arivu means awareness. But in this context, the awareness he's talking about is the awareness that rises and subsides. In other words, the awareness but knows the world. In other words, ego or mind. So what he means by awareness in this context is ego or mind. So what he says in this world, in, the, in this verse is, Uluhu aribotum ondrai uditu odungum enum Uluhu arivu tannal olirum that means, though the world and awareness arise and subside simultaneously, the world shines by awareness. What he means by this is, the awareness that rises and subsides with the world is ego. And it is only by ego that the world shines. In other words, it's only in the view of ego that the world seems to exist. That is, ego is the, is the adjunct... Um, is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. In this adjunct conflated awareness, 
is the fundamental awareness I am. That fundamental awareness I am is the original light. So ego shines by that light of I am. And, uh, and it illumines the world. It enables the world that, that is, it, without the ego, the appearance of the world would not be known. So the, the world, that's what he means by the world shines by awareness. In other words, the world shines by ego. And then he goes on to say, in, in the next uh, sentence, Ulahu arivu tondri marivadaku, marivadaku, idonai tondri mariadu olirum undram am achte poro. What that means is, only that which shines without appearing or disappearing, as the place for the appearing and disappearing of the world and awareness, awareness again means ego here, is the is poro, uh, uh, which is pundram. Pundram is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word pona. Pona means what is full, what is whole. In other words, the, that which is infinite, that which about the whole infinite whole. So uh, that poral is the infinite whole. Poral, incidentally, is a Tamil uh, word, but it means, in most contexts, it means the same as the Sanskrit word vastu. So it's the ultimate reality, the ultimate substance. Um, the reason this word that means substance is used here is, just like, um, for example, Gold ornaments are nothing other than gold. All this multiplicity, the one substance that appears as all this multiplicity, is this poral or, or vastu, which is the infinite whole. And it is, as Bhagavan says here, it um, it shines without appearing and disappearing as the place. The word he used for place here is idan, which means the um, the the place or space or expanse or location of a site or a ground for the appearing and disappearing of the world and the awareness that knows the world. So um, we, we can understand what he's saying here with the an analogy he often used of the cinema, um, a cinema picture. But the base on which the cinema picture appears is the screen. Uh, the, all, all the... The all phenomena, all the uh, perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, um, uh, and so on, are all just pictures appearing on the screen. And when we say perceptions, that means all the whole world is nothing but appearing, but pictures appearing on the screen. What is the screen on which all these things appear? It is, uh, it is that, it is that oral that. Uh, um, that ultimate substance. So that is the, the base, the ground on which everything appears and disappears. But it itself uh, shines eternally without ever appearing or disappearing. So that is Bhagavan's definition of poral. In other words, poral is what we actually are, our real nature, such it, the pure awareness I am, that is poral. Is that an adequate answer to that question, or do you want to ask anything more about that? No, I think that's that's pretty good. So, um, as a follow up, I will um, 
I wanted to ask um, for portal, you prefer the English word substance. Um, you know, in the past, people have used uh, reality um, to translate that. In fact, most of them still do. Um, but you prefer the word substance. Um, could you clarify that? Why you prefer the word substance? Well, that is one of the meanings of the word portal. Um, for example, in um, in Ekam Panchakam, um, uh, there's a verse in Ekam Panchakam, um, verse four, in which he refers to um, he uses the golden um, the golden ornament analogy, and the verse begins with the word ponok. Uh, Ponuku, to, for gold or to gold. And uh, when he made that into a Kali Vemba form, he put, uh, I think the words he used, the, the, the words he added were Vastuvam Ponuku, uh, the gold which is the Vastu. So that clearly implies he's using the word Vastu in the sense of substance. And I mean, the, these analogies are used so often in Advaita. Bhagavan tended to use this gold ornament analogy most. Um, a parallel analogy is the pot and the, the clay, which is used a lot in Advaita. Bhagavan tended not to use, he tended to use the gold ornament analogy more, but they're the same basically. That is, there's, as he says, for example, in um in verse 13 of um Uludunapadu, um what he says in verse 14 of Uludnapdu is Nyanamam Tane Mei. Oneself who is awareness alone is real. Awareness here means pure awareness, jnana. Nana Vam Nyanam Agnanamam. Awareness that is manifold is ignorance. That, that is knowing manyness is ignorance is the implication. And then he goes on to say, um Poyam Agnanam. That means even ignorance, which is unreal, does not exist except as oneself, who is awareness. And then for that he gives an analogy, all the many ornaments are unreal. Do they exist except as gold? Uh, which is real. So here, Bhagavan, when he uses this analogy, he says the, the, the uh, ornaments are unreal, because the ornaments here means the forms. The forms are unreal, because what is today um, a bangle may tomorrow be melted and made into a necklace. So the forms are unreal. What is real is the substance. So he says, mayam ponne, the, the gold which is real. So the substance in Advaita, substance is real, form is unreal. So to, I think the most appropriate translation of vastu or poral, in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, is substance. That is the sense in which they're used. Some people say, no, 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 in Sanskrit, dravya means substance. Dravya is means substance in a in a in a more in a cruder sense. That is Dravya refers to a physical substance, whereas Bastu or Poral refers to 
a metaphysical substance. What actually exists is that is the, the substance. And incidentally, the English word substance is a nice word because what it, the etymology of the English word substance, sub means under, stance means standing. What stands under is the substance. So the underlying reality, that is the, that is the real meaning of substance. Right. So the substance is real, the forms are unreal. And also the, the origin, I think it's Latin, substantia, is that what the word? Yeah, yes, from? yes. That also supports it, is it, does it is Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yes, that's what I was just saying. That's the origin of the English word substance. It means, etymologically, from the Latin substantia, what stands underneath. Yeah. So the substance of the illusory snake is the rope. The substance of the uh, uh, gold ornaments is gold. The substance of the mud pot is mud. The substance of all appearances is the, is the one thing that actually exists, namely, I am. So that alone is what Bhagavan means when he talks about Porol or some, or, or Vastu. So the, the, the questioner originally asked the question, now, as a follow-up, is asking. So, so this is a fundamental substance that both ego and I can be aware of. <clears throat> ego and I are the two. Are there two eyes? There's only one eye. That is the pure I am is Porol or Vastu. That is the ultimate substance. Ego is that same substance mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am this person. I am this body. So even when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, we don't cease to be aware of ourselves as I am. So ego couldn't shine without this fundamental awareness, I am. So we are never for a moment unaware of the bastu or the porol. Just like when we see gold ornaments, we may admire, oh, this is such a beautiful necklace, such beautiful craftsmanship. But even when we're seeing the the beauty of the form, we we never cease to see the substance. If you take away the gold, where is the beauty of the of the necklace or the tiara or whatever beautiful thing has been fashioned out of it by the goldsmith? The ornaments have no existence at all, independent of the gold, independent of their substance. Just like that, ego has no existence whatsoever, independent of its substance. And nothing else has any in existence independent of ego, because everything else appears only in the view of ego. So the ultimate substance is Porol, is the pure awareness I am. That is Satchit. That is the real uh, Porol or Vastu, the real substance. That which un stands under all of this and supports everything. So, um, thank you, Michael. Robert Boyer, are you back online now? Hello, I'm here. Okay, so... Can you hear me? Uh, Michael did answer your question, so I will send you the recording later. But for now, let's focus on your follow-up to this answer that Michael just gave. You want to read the comment that he just wrote? I'm not sure what comment you're referring I to. I that there is no substance. 
Oh, well, let me finish my most recent comment yeah. by, by saying that uh, if we take gold, which is so often referred to as the real thing, if we dig, we get protons and neutrons. If we dig more, we get quarks. Will it ever stop? May I doubt it? We may finally get down to energy, but is energy a thing? There is no substance. It's no, an illusion. We could go like even everything. deeper than that. We can go deeper than that. That is, gold is referred to as a substance just for the purpose of analogy. Obviously, gold isn't real. Though Bhagavan says in that verse, gold which is real, he's talking at the level of the analogy. What is actually real, the actual substance, is only I am. Ego borrows its semi-existence from I am. So the substance of ego is the pure awareness I am. And everything else, all names and forms, all quarks and protons and neutrons and um, quasars and whatever else, I, whatever I don't know all these things, whatever they may be, they are all objects known by ego. So they borrow their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. None of these things have any existence whatsoever independent of ego, in whose view alone they seem to exist. So the substance of all phenomena, of all objects, is ego, the subject. And the substance of ego is the pure awareness I am. So this, that's why I said, though it me, though poral or vastu um, means substance, it doesn't mean substance in a physical sense. It's not talking about a physical substance, though it is in a sense analogous to a physical substance, but it is not a physical substance. It's a metaphysical substance. Would you, reality. I, may I ask this simple question? Yes. Why don't we teach in, in primary school when we're teaching arithmetic the, the fundamental truth that one is equal to two? One is equal to two? I would say if you want a fundamental truth, it's that two equals one. Ultimately, all is one. All multiplicity is an appearance. My, my dear Michael, equal is commutative. So if one is two, then two is one, no doubt. Um, no, we can say the many is one. We can't say the one is many. There is it's only an one. It's an axiom of symmetry that if x equals y, then y okay. equals x. Okay. The snake is a rope. Can you say the rope is a snake? No, but I can say in, in first-order logic with equality, as we have it from Gödel, we have the axiom, if x equals y, then y equals x. That, that is fine at the level of, logic, of, of pure logic, but in the, when we apply it, we, we, we can say the snake is, a, is just a rope, but we cannot say... The rope is the, the rope is just a snake. It doesn't in well, practice. The pure logic doesn't always work. If if you want to do better than Girdle, please write out what your system is, so we can study it. it. 
<laughs> I don't pretend, but I'm not a I'm not a brilliant logician. I simply know the simple fact: the snake is a rope. The rope is not a snake. This is in reference to the snake rope analogy, right? The yes. Yes. Snake, right. Right. Um, you may want to. So Just quickly mention that, that analogy, is pure so it... pure logic is fine for mathematicians and for philosophers and such people, but Bhagavan's philosophy is an extremely practical philosophy. Bhagavan philosophy, in and of itself, is it, philosophy has to have a practical application. The only really ultimately the only thing that is useful is knowing and being what we actually are. So Bhagavan's philosophy is a philosophy that the sole aim of which is to direct us how to know and to be what we actually are. So logic has a place to, has a part to play, but logic has its limitations like everything else. Logic is a function of the intellect. The intellect is, is limited. So we, we cannot know the ultimate truth by logic. Logic can if one help equals you point two, us in the right direction. If one equals two, you're not going to get very far in arithmetic at any level. Yes. Ultimately, arithmetic is meaningful in a state of multiplicity. Like languages are meaningful in a state of multiplicity. That's why Bhagavan said the ultimate language is silence. Because it's it's beyond two, where there's only one only without a second. So do you that, propose the state do you reality, propose do you propose that primary schools should simply be silence? No, because primary schools have a function, <laughs> a worldly function. So everything has its place. The primary school has its place, the PhD has its place, the Godel theorem all has its place. But we can't Godel's theory theorem may be very useful for some applications. It is not useful in this. We it's unnecessary in this pure philosophy that Bhagavan has taught us. Pure and very simple philosophy, basic philosophy. Going back to the root. I'm sure you are right, and I'm sure I am confused. I'm sure we're all confused. The very nature he goes. <laughs> Confusion is the very nature of ego, because ego is the <coughs> false awareness, I am this body. I am is pure awareness. This body is a, is a judder, a, a non-aware uh, physical form. So the very nature of ego is confusion. So all, all philosophy, all science, all humans' achievements, all uh, born in this confusion, this confusion, I am this body. So if we want to be free of confusion, we need to hold on to that which alone is real, namely I am. And thereby in we primary, go beyond philosophy, in, beyond in, mathematics, religion. But in primary school, Primary we'll just has, sit there and be quiet. Primary school has its own function. All sorts of students <laughs> go to primary school. Bhagavan also went to primary school. We also went to primary school. But Bhagavan, where he ended up, where we are ending up, is different. So for, 
primary school has a worldly function. That is, children, when they're born in this world, they need to learn certain things. In, in many societies, there's no such thing as primary school because it's not necessary. But in our modern day society, primary school is necessary because of the type of skills we need to survive in this world. We need primary school. So, we need so one, is, one is equal to two, but we won't tell you that because it will interfere with your getting a job. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's what it's all about, ultimately. <laughs> That's why Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, when he was asked, he was not much <laughs> educated. And he said, what use have I got of this breadwinning education? So most education is only for giving us the basic skills to earn our daily bread. And millions are trying to cross the Texas-Mexican border. Yes, yes, because they, because they, everyone is trying to survive in this world. And some places it's easier to survive than others. We should some, just tell those immigrants to be quiet. No, they, they have as much right to food, clothing and shelter and the basic amenities of life as we have. Those are just if you things. want to tell anyone to keep if we want to tell anyone to keep quiet, we should keep quiet. <laughs> That's what Bhagavan is telling us. Sumeru, just be. I'll shut up. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> well, we should all shut up, but do we have the in order to shut up, we need all consuming love to subside and surrender ourselves completely. Then only will we truly shut up. Merely Stopping speaking is not true silence. Stopping thinking is not true silence. Not rising as ego alone is real silence. Not ever rising as ego. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, I hope that answers um, Robert's um, and questions. Um, that will move. Well, not to... all questions can be uh, can be answered. We, the only questions we need to answer are the questions that will yield something, the answer of which will yield something useful. So, um, Bhagavan's teachings are giving us the answers to the really important questions and showing us how to find the answers to those questions for ourselves. Right. Uh, Kumar, can I please add something? Yes. The Equality sign Robert is talking about is not applicable here because when you say X appears to be Y, you cannot say Y appears to be X. Uh, so it's not associative. The appears to be is not an equal. Uh, I think all this logic, we don't really need to go down this line. Yeah, exactly we can, right. You can spend lifetime studying logic and you still won't know what you actually are. So let us, logic is a useful tool. It's useful, but we should apply it in a way that is useful. Bhagavan has shown us a useful way to, a, a, a really valuable way in which we can use logic to understand what we are and what we are not. Having understood what we are and what we are not, we then need to investigate ourselves to actually be aware of ourselves as we actually are. So logic has its own place, its own part to play, but we shouldn't limit ourselves to logic. 
and we shouldn't we shouldn't take logic too far. Sastra logica basana. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so let's go on to Michael Fenton's question. Has been waiting for a while. Go ahead, Michael. Michael Fenton. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah okay. My mic sometimes acts up, so that's good. Um, well, we are getting in. Looks like we were touching in, touching on the, the something like the essence, the self, the uh, that Bhagavan describes, and nothingness, right? So, uh, my household, there's me who i believe in bhagavan's teachings 100 and my wife is buddhist right so the buddhist calls this you know underlying reality uh emptiness right but bhagavan calls it the self and i find that when me and my wife are talking about this this subject that if we just agree on that that the the self what Bhagavan calls the self and what the Buddhists call the emptiness, that it's really one and the same. Now, I want to say this, though. This is really important. I find that the ace of my sleeve is when I'm talking to my wife, I said, all these teachings you get from Buddha, do they come directly from Buddha? And she'll admit, no, Buddha didn't actually write any teachings at all. All of Buddha's teachings are are at least 400 years scriptures made of Buddhist teachings are 400 years past when when Buddha had passed away, right? So there is no direct teachings from Buddha to the people following Buddhism, right? Where, Michael, we have you, you're the goal. Like you, we're getting direct teachings from Bhagavan directly translated and directly given to us like this is the highest blessing there sorry you see where i'm going here i am so appreciative of you michael thank you well we it's michael this mike this michael is incidental unimportant that is Bhagavan happens to have given me the role of translating his works to the best of my ability. But we, it's, let's not, that is just like the, the, the pipe through which the water comes. But what is the source of that water which is coming through this pipe? That is what we have to appreciate. So the source of all this is Bhagavan. Whatever I've translated, it's Bhagavan's words that I've translated. So if there's any value in my translation, it's because to some extent, at least, they're conveying the meaning that Bhagavan intended to convey through his Tamil words. So we, we have to see the source, which is Bhagavan. Another thing about this um, something or nothing. Well, about nothing, there is no such thing as nothing. Because if it's some, if it, if there is such a thing as nothing, then it is something, and therefore not nothing. So nothing is actually just a a human concept. When we say that it, but the reality is nothing. What we what, how we reach that point is that it is not any of the particular things that we take it to be. It's not any particular thing, but it is the only thing. 
So again, this is we we get caught up in words here. Another thing you said, Bhagavan said very basalt. Bhagavan actually never talked about any such thing as basalt. Basalt is a a term that is used in English translations, but for which there's no no real equivalent in Sanskrit or Tamil. That is the term Bhagavan used in Tamil when he's referring to ourselves generally is tan, which is simply a pronoun but means oneself. But Sanskrit term atman is also in most cases used as a pronoun meaning oneself. It's also sometimes used as a noun. And as a noun, it can refer either to what we actually are, namely such it, the pure awareness I am, or it can refer to ourself as ego. The ego is also jivatma. So but the, the, there's this English term, the self, is, is actually a misleading term. Firstly, in Sanskrit and Tamil, there are no definite articles, so there's nothing equivalent to the. Secondly, there are no capital letters, uh, so there's no uh, the self with a capital S. The terms that are used well, particularly in Tamil, this Tamil term tan, it doesn't mean self with a capital S. It simply means oneself. Bhagavan, in the same sentence, he will use this word tan multiple times. Sometimes it is referring to ourself as we actually are. Sometimes it's referring to ourself as ego. We need to understand from a context which he's referring to. For example, in verse... Um, Verse uh, <clears throat> um, in verse twenty of Uludunapadu, Bhagavan uh, um, uses the word tan and derivatives of it so many times. He starts by saying, um, "Karnam tanevitu," leaving oneself who sees. Oneself who sees he is ego. Tan kadavale karnal karnam manamayam mam kakshyam. Oneself seeing God is seeing only a mental image. Again, oneself here is referring to ourself as ego. Then he goes on to say, and it gets really complicated here in the next sentence. He says, Tanne karnam avan. Tan kadavul kandan am. Once, oh, he who sees oneself, himself, or uh, uh, is one who has seen God. And but then he qualifies it saying, Tan mudle. Tan mudle means the source of oneself. Tan mudal poi. Oneself, the, uh, the root going. Tan Kadavul Andri Illadal, oneself is God. So what he means by that is only one who sees oneself, the origin of oneself is one who has seen God, because the origin oneself going, oneself is not other than God. So he we need to we need to apply our understanding here when he's referring to oneself or one. What is he referring to in each case? When he says one who sees oneself, he means if we uh, 
see what he means by seeing oneself means seeing what we actually are. And oneself, what we actually are, is the origin of ourself. In other words, the origin of ego. And only one who sees oneself, the origin of oneself, is one who has seen God. Because the origin oneself, again here, origin oneself, is referring to ego. It, it, he's turning it around. He, he's referring to ego. The origin oneself going. So when this ego goes, oneself is not other than God. So only when oneself goes is oneself not other than God. So it's, Bhagavan is writing in a very, in, in a very carefully worded and in a very subtle way that we have to think about. So if we translate Tan here as the self, we get into a complete confusion. If we simply say oneself and understand that oneself in some context cases refers to ego, ourself as ego, and in some cases refers to ourself as we actually are, then this becomes clear. So uh, it, many times Bhagavan didn't distinguish, didn't use words to clearly distinguish between ourself as we actually are and ourself as ego. He left it to us to understand. In some cases, the distinction is unnecessary. For example, in the term Atmavichara, does Atma refer to what we actually are or to ego? We can take it either way. Because if we investigate ego, we'll find out what we actually are. If we look carefully at the snake, we'll see the rope. Because that's what the snake actually is. Likewise, if we look carefully at ego, we'll see what we actually are. So in the term Atma Vichara, we don't have to define Atma as referring either to ego or to our real nature. It's just ourself. We need to investigate ourself. Um, when Bhagavan wanted to distinguish between ourself as ego and ourself as we actually are, for ourself as ego, he used terms such as ahande, ego, or ahankara. Usually, ahande usually it just means ego. Or he often used manam, mind. It, to refer to ego, because what the mind essentially is, is only ego, as he says in verse 18 of Upadeshundia. When he wanted to refer specifically to what we actually are, the term he used was Atma Swarupa. Swarupa literally means own form, but it, it's a by, it, it, that's the etymological meaning, but the actual meaning of Swarupa is is the nature, real nature, what the thing actually is. So Atma Swarupa means the real nature of oneself, what we actually, in other words, what we actually are. So sometimes he used words to distinguish ego from what we actually are, but there's no exact term in Tamil or Sanskrit that we can translate as the self with a capital S. So but, but a lot of the uh, the disputes between the Buddhists and the, and the Vedan and the Advaitins center around whether there is the self or not the self. Both are wrong. That is, there, there is no, the word self is best to understand not as a noun, but as a pronoun. Because there's no separate thing, the self. I am myself. You are yourself. This table is itself, the light is itself, the tree is itself, your wife is herself, your children are themselves. So everything is itself. So there's no separate thing as the self. 
So if you, if as some Buddhists do, if you claim there's no such thing as the self, there's no such thing as self, then you're saying there's nothing at all, because everything is itself. But but if you're saying no, there is something called the self, you're equally wrong because there's no separate thing called the self. So the, ter- the Sanskrit term Atman and the Tamil word Tan simply refers to ourself. It, depending on the context, it re- can refer to ourself as we actually are, <laughs> or it can refer to ourself as we now seem to be, namely as ego. But that that it's not a separate thing called the self. So this term the self is actually a misleading term because as soon as we start thinking in terms of the self, then we are reifying something, but doesn't that has no separate existence. But there, there's no I am myself are not two separate things. I am myself. You are yourself. Well, so you don't that. have any self other than yourself. Yeah, I, I hear everything you're saying, but I actually feel that there is a teaching in it in itself by him using it in the two different ways, because the ultimate truth is you are already that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Even right. ego is nothing but, uh, uh, but the pure awareness that we actually are. Yeah, you are already that. Like yeah. realization isn't something that happens. Yeah. That's why Bhagavan often said there are not two eyes. One eye to find the other eye. There are not two eyes. There are not two selves. There's only one self. Yes. Thank we you, are, Michael. As he says in um, verse 33, I think, of Uludhunaptu, being one is the experience, is the truth, the experience of everyone. But on a little, uh, a little bit of give to the Buddhist is although they call it emptiness, when you ask them what is emptiness, they're like emptiness is everything. It's emptiness yeah. is entirely yeah. full. So it's not. It's it's, it's ultimately it's all down yeah. to words. Yes, exactly. Yes. And we need to go. The words words are useful in this path. As they're useful as a pointer, but we can't find the truth in the words. The words are like the finger pointing at the moon. We need to see at what the finger is pointing at, not at the finger. So, so long as we we don't see beyond the words, we are not seeing what the words are pointing at. The words are pointing at something beyond themselves. That is what we need to understand. And what Bhagavan word, what Bhagavan's words are all pointing at is ourself. Yes. The one self that there actually is, the one and only self. One of the best uh, analogies that Bhagavan gave, it was covered just a few weeks ago, was that using a lamp to look for the darkness. like Exactly, exactly. And he would pick up, pick up a lamp <laughs> would be the first thing to do to go looking for this darkness. And that's yeah. where we're all at. Like, that's what we're trying to do. We're, any exactly. sort of thought, anything in the mind, any action or whatever will keep prevent you from seeing it. You need to just drop everything. Yeah. Strip everything away. I yep. agree. Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you both. Oh, go ahead, Rebecca. Okay, thank you, Michael and Kumar. Um, so, in my practice, what I'm seeing is that there is. Um, so, I just want to describe something that's going on yeah. and see where we go with it. So, I'll be. I just be paying attention, and there will be something that I recognize as sort of an in, that feels like inspiration. 
just mm. pure, comes out of nowhere. It's just inspiration. And then I will watch mm. the mind just glob onto it and, you know, take it. Oh, there's ideas, there's emotions, there's to do's, there's all those things. And so um, as I'm looking, and then I realize that I'm the one watching all of this process happen. And the question that's been in my mind is what is the nature of that inspiration in, in, in it, in its purest form before all of the, I, I'm pretty clear that all this other stuff is just ego, but what I'm not clear on is what is the inspiration? Is that where to hold the attention or is that where to drop into the being, or is that still just another artifact of the mind since I'm clearly witnessing it? You know what yeah. I mean? Okay. Okay. Good, good question. Um, anything that appears and disappears, is not real. What is real is what is ever existing and ever shining. That is our own being, I am. So we are not investigating anything that appears or disappears. We're investigating that which is eternal. So whatever may appear or disappear, whether it's an inspiration, whether it's a beautiful form of God, divine music, whatever it be, let anything appear or disappear, it's no concern of ours. To whom does it all appear? Someone once asked Bhagavan, that is someone who obviously didn't understand what Bhagavan actually is, taking him to be an ordinary sadhu, someone asked Bhagavan, uh, Bhagavan, what would you ask for if God appeared before you? Bhagavan said, I would ask him not to appear. <laughs> because I don't want a God who appears or disappears, but the God who appears or disappears is not the real God. Anything that appears and disappears is unreal. God is what is real, so he is what is ever existing and shining. What is ever existing and shining is only I am. So we shouldn't be concerned. Yes, when we try to turn our mind within, all sorts of things will appear. Whatever appears is unreal. Let's not be concerned about it. What is the one thing that never appears or disappears? We're coming back to this verse 7 of Uludunapadu. That which shines without appearing or disappearing as the, as the ground, as the foundation for everything that appears and disappears, that alone is what is real. That alone is the real substance. So we, uh, we should... We should not be concerned about anything that appears and disappears. That's why if anything appears or disappears, Bhagavan has given us a Brahmastra, a, that is a divine weapon. To whom does it appear? Mm -hmm. That is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So let even the greatest inspiration in the world appear. To whom does it appear? Yes, you just gave me the the how too, because I was think I was uh, the question was being there. So how do so how do I move my attention away from the inspiration? And again, the question is the how. So it sounds like the it's like the, so the the mind is getting enamored with the writing on the paper, so to speak, yeah. which is the inspiration and the guidance. There is just again just to look at the paper and, yeah, and you yeah. know put the attention and you are on the, the paper. paper. And yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's very helpful. Very right, helpful. I get right. I get caught in that. So we much. all get caught. This is the nature of a mind. Mind is Maya. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. 
So Kumar just asked But that me, is why Bhagavan is always emphasizing we should hold on to what alone is real. And what is real is what is ever existing and ever shining. And that is only our own being. I am. Thank you. So you want me to yeah, read Yeah, in relation to that, you can read that poster. When I feel peace, that is also unreal, right? Since something is experiencing it or watching it. <clears throat> Any peace that appears and disappears is unreal. What we actually are is the peace that never appears or disappears. The ever-shining peace, which is our own being. But we overlook this peace, which is our own being, because we keep on looking for something new. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, Bruce, you want to go ahead and go next? Do you have a question? Uh, well, it was uh, earlier, right? In relation right. To, to Robert Boyer. Set? Yeah, let me go back. You ordered a piece? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see, where the heck is it now? Uh, I don't want to slow us down. Okay, let me go to Sarah, Sarah Inayat. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, okay, go ahead and finish it, finish it. Make it a little... Go ahead. Bruce, go ahead. Okay, so I'm posing this in relation to the uh, your response to Robert Boyer and his question. And I because I, I feel like Robert Boyer, the question it was at, it was you were answering specifically his question. But I felt like there was a question behind his question. And the, the question, the way I'm phrasing it, I'm trying to phrase it is, can the action of a nishkarmiya karma take the form of a philosophical question like Robert's and thus lead him to atma vichara, an authentic atma vichara? So that's the, that's, that's my my question do you see what i'm getting at yes 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 that is philosophy can point us in all sorts of directions there are all that is this world is full of from time immemorial in cultures throughout the world there have been so many different philosophies and they've yeah. been pointing in so many different directions but bhagavan has given us a philosophy that is consistently and persistently pointing our attention back at ourselves. So Bhagavan's philosophy, for those of us who want to know what we actually are, and thereby to subside and just be as we are, Bhagavan's philosophy is the supremely valuable philosophy. So philosophy per se, it, it's just like um, a knife. And you... Uh, but um, the same knife, but in the hand of a murderer, can uh, can kill someone. In the hand of a surgeon, it can save someone's life. So the philosophy is just an instrument like a knife. It can cut in so many different directions. So it depends what how we apply that philosophy. So Bhagavan has given us a philosophy that is pointing us in the right direction. So the philosophy is not an end in itself. It is a means. It is pointing us in the, what we should investigate. We should investigate only what is eternal, 
namely ourselves. Does that adequately answer your question? Yeah, I th I think I it it's I I hope it uh, is helpful for Robert as well. Yeah, that's that was my intention. So, thank you. Um, so this is an um, questionnaire. Um, this from a questionnaire will wishes to be anonymous. How to use Arunachalas to the Panjagam as a guide or support or companion in our life? I have been trying to learn the songs by heart over the past year, and I find that, for example, if I'm depressed or agitated, singing actually <coughs> can be helpful. So, is there an intrinsic power in these verses? Yes. Um, because these words came from Bhagavan, even if we don't understand the meaning of the words, they have their own power. But if we understand the meaning and we, we meditate on the meaning of these verses, they are even more powerful. <clears throat> I mean, they have such great power because this is what, what Bhagavan is... Um, <clears throat> Basically, Bhagavan is uh, in Akshram life, for example, or all the, it applies to all the songs of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, Suti Panchakam, but particularly Akshram life, Bhagavan is telling our life story or what our life story should be. Our life story is not the external story, what's happened in our life, where we were born, um, where we went to school, what happened in our life, who we married, how many children we have, what job we had. This is not the real story. The real story of our life, the in our inward journey, our journey back to our source. And that is the story Bhagavan is telling in Akshram Lai. So if we meditate upon the meaning of the verses of Akshram Lai, that has so much power to push us back within more and more and more. Because that's what it's all about. Oh, exactly. Bruce, Bruce. <laughs> muting, muting, sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, um, second question from the same person. I'm finding great difficulty in even beginning to give up attachment to this body as I. Other vasanas like the wasana to eat tasty food, etc., is literally easier to give up. But this dehabimana seems um, almost impossible to give up and prevents the mind from turning within. This dehabimana, uh, the I am the body sense, is also a wasana. Dehabimana is the dehabimana is ego. Abhimana means. There's no exact English equivalent of Abhimana, but Abhimanam implies both attachment and identification. So we are we identify this body as I, and we are consequently attached to it. So that that identification and that attachment, that is the Abhimanam. So Dehabhimana is another name for ego. So ego is the root of all vasanas. Vasanas themselves are not easy to give up because we we have cultivated these vasanas from, as Bhagavan says, Tondru Tottu Varakindra Vishaya Vasanaga. These vasanas come from time immemorial. So maybe the vasanas may be changing. We may be replacing one vasana with another vasana. That is, the vasanas are like the ocean waves. So they, they ebb and flow, they rise and subside. <clears throat> but it, uh, 
extricating ourselves from these vasanas is not is a is not is not a simple task because why are we Bhagavan often talks about the mind acting under the sway of its vasanas. Why are we swayed by our vasanas? Because our vasanas are our likes and dislikes in seed form. So why do we allow ourselves to be swayed by our vasanas? Because we like to be swayed by them. Because they are the vasanas are likings, basically. Likings and dislikings. So uh, <clears throat> it requires great love, great bhakti, which can come only from grace. But though it can, though Bhagavan is giving us that love to turn within, we have to yield ourselves to his grace. We have to we have to allow ourselves to be swayed by his grace to turn within more and more. So in order to overcome these Vishaya Vasanas, the most effective means, the most thorough means, is to patient and persistent practice of self-investigation. Because the nature of vasanas, vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength vasanas have is strength that we give them. So they derive their strength from us. When we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, we are thereby strengthening that vasana. When we refrain from being swayed by that vasana, we are weakening that vasana. So all Vishaya vasanas are taking our mind in one direction, well, in multiple directions, but all those multiple directions are outwards. So in that sense, they're all taking us in one direction, outwards. By turning our attention within and clinging to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing our mind to go out. So we're not allowing any Vishaya vasanas, so long as we're holding on firmly to self-attentiveness, we're not allowing any vasana to sway us any Vishaya Vasana to sway us. So by the more we cling to self-attentiveness, the more we are weakening Vishaya Vasanas collectively. Not one by one. Though Bhagavan talks about cutting down the enemies as they come from the fort one by one, it, it, that's just for the analogy. But in practice, we, we, <clears throat> we by clinging to self-attentiveness, we are clinging, we are weakening Vishaya Vasanas collectively. Um, <clears throat> so this is the, to overcome Vishaya Vasanas is not an is not a is not a, I don't want to say it's not easy. Um, it's not a it, it it's not something that we can we can just oh brush away okay I get rid of all my vasanas. Some people tell me, oh, I've now got rid of this vasana, I've got rid of that vasana, when they're talking about their particular desires they may have freed themselves from. But the desires of a vasana is in the sprouted form, the, the vasanas of a seed. So even if we think we've overcome a certain desire, that vasana may still be there in our heart and may later spring up again, sprout again. So it, this is a superhuman task. Uh, overcoming all our vasanas, but it is possible by clinging to self-attentiveness. So when you say you're not able to give up the dehabimana, you're not able to give up the dehabimana because you're not able to give up your vasanas. So the, the same medicine that frees us from the vishaya vasanas will also ultimately free us from the root of the vishaya vasanas, namely the dehabimana. And that medicine is this simple practice of self-investigation. Uh, 
So the more we cling to self-investigation, the more we weaken the Vishaya Vasanas. And to the extent to which we weaken the Vishaya Vasanas, we are also weakening the root of the Vishaya Vasanas, namely ego. So do not... It seems to us to be a superhuman task. It seems to us we're not at all able to do this. But if we trust in Bhagavan's words and continue trying our best to cling to self-attentiveness, slowly, slowly, these vasanas will lose their strength. And this day, Habimana will begin to wither, and eventually it will die completely, along with all its vasanas. <laughs> So two questions as an answer in itself, you know, self-surrender and self-investigation. Can, can I add one? Can, yes. can I add one sentence? Uh, there are many reports of out-of-body experiences, such as near death and drug use. I can't say that I recommend any of them. Yes, but even when they, when you say out of the body. When people people describe out of body experiences, for example, a near death experience, or as you say, maybe from from some drug, they have an what they call an out of body experience. But supposing I I experience myself out of this body, I'm floating up somewhere and I'm looking down on my body, as people sometimes do when they recover from near death experiences, they still are located somewhere. I, I was, the, the surgeons were operating on me and I was up there and I could look down and I could see what they were doing. People, there are reports like that. So they still have a subtle body, they, they still have a physical body in a subtle form because it has a physical location. If you say I was up, I was up looking down, you've got a location, you were somewhere up there. So it's... <coughs> Though we may be viewing our body from outside in such experiences, we still have a body through which we are seeing this body. So it's not really an out-of-body experience, but we all have an out-of-body, a true out-of-body experience every day when we fall asleep. Because we, in sleep, we experience ourselves just as I am, without any body. So that is the true out-of-body experience. And we have to experience that here and now by clinging to I am. To quote A.E. Hausman, ale man ails the drink for people whom it hurts to think. Yes. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Um, um, now let me go on to the next question from Peterson. How intense should we practice um, self-inquiry, meaning self-investigation, and is intensity more important than consistency? Um, again, it's very, that is, we use words like intensity, persistence, and everything, but these are not really things we can measure. When we talk of intensity of self-investigation, we mean the, the the degree to which our attention is focused on ourselves and thereby withdrawn from other things. So we should try to practice this as intensely as possible. In other words, we should try to focus our attention as much as possible on our mere being, I am. And we should do so as persistently as possible. So, but we are not to measure these things. 
as much as possible, we need to attend to ourselves, as simple as that. But you shouldn't get too much caught up in words like intensity and everything. They, all these words are just pointers. None of them really oh. adequately capture what we are doing. Like, but when I doing... practice really ahead, intensely, I, I, I get like, like a roadblock. Like I practice so intense that like I just can't go any further. And if I just keep on doing that, that's a very tiring pro and stressful process to, to do it like, like, like that. If it's, if it's stressful, then it's not, we're not, there's some, something is going wrong there because we, uh, it, firstly, it, though we talk about it as doing, doing self-inquiry, it's not actually a doing. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves. The doing mind will subside. So it's a cessation of doing. And it it's actually the ultimate relaxation. The reason it begins, it's stressful, is that the vasanas are constantly pulling us out. And if we're trying to fight against the vasanas, then yes, we will get tired. We will so sometimes it's good just to relax, leave it be, and then again bring it back. But we have to that that is. This this practice is, in a sense, an art. We have to learn this art by practice. So, um, obviously, we shouldn't get to a point where we feel it's stressful, because then our attention is on the stress we are experiencing, rather than on the one to whom the stress is appearing. So we have to we have to go about this investigation in a very intelligent way we shouldn't we shouldn't get ourselves into a state of stress because a state of stress is a state of mind we are trying to go beyond the mind by clinging to that which is ever free of stress namely our own being so if we find we are stressing ourselves relax and then again return to it with a, a fresh with with a fresh heart and mind but it's very difficult to put all these things in words because the, what self-investigation actually is is something beyond words. So whatever words are used are just pointers. So if we feel that we're experiencing stress or anything like that, we should understand we're not quite doing it right. So relax and try again. That's why Bhagavan called this investigation. An investigation... When if an investigation is proceeding, as the investigation proceeds, you learn more and more, and you get better and better idea the direction the investigation should go in. Thank you, Michael. It's a very subtle. It's a. It's very the practice of self investigation is very simple, but at the same time very subtle. So we need to go about it in a very intelligent way. I, okay. I hope that was a helpful answer. I hope so. Um, Thank you. You're welcome, Pierce. Um, so let's go on to the next question from Sarah, Sarah Inayat. Um, so namaskaram all. Um, hello, Michael. I have a question about the I am the doer notion. Does it mean we need to desist from thinking I have to do this? Or does it mean a violence of the thought 
I am the doer of these actions. <clears throat> Doership is the very nature of ego, because as ego, we identify ourselves with the body and mind. So whatever actions are done by mind, I am thinking this, I am seeing this, I am hearing this, I am uh, feeling this, I am remembering this. So we have doership there in the level of mind. Whatever actions are done by the speech, I am saying this, I am talking, I am speaking, there's doership. Whatever actions are done by the body, I am sitting, I am standing, I am walking, I am working, I am doing this. So doership is inevitable so long as we rise as ego. Doership is the very nature of ego. <clears throat> um, merely trying to stop thinking I am doing this is not the solution. But that is so long as we rise as ego, we are experiencing ourselves as the doer. So merely thinking I am not doing this is not, gonna, it's not a solution. The solution is to hold on to our being, I am. The more we hold on to our being, the more we thereby separate ourselves from the body, speech, and mind which are doing the actions. So the idea, we are, by holding on to our being, we are dissolving the false identification, which is the cause for the doership. And regarding about, I have to do this, I have to do that, that is what is called kartavya buddhi. That is, the sense of doership is called kartrutva buddhi. That means sense of doership. Kartavya buddhi means the sense of duty. I have to do this. I must do this. I must do that. Um, yes, we shouldn't give room as far as possible. Bhagavan, in the 13th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says very beautifully and very, very, I mean, it's, 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 he's, he says, um, since one Parameshwara Shakti, Parameshwara Shakti means, um, Parameshwara means the Supreme Lord, Shakti being power, so the power of the Supreme Lord, and Ishwara also means the ruling power, so the, 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 the supreme ruling power of, of God, we can say, since that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, instead of we also yielding it to it, why to be perpetually thinking, it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that. What Bhagavan refers to when he says, uh, it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that, that is the Kartavya Buddhi. I have to do this, I have to do that. What he is saying here, when he says that Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, what he means by Karyas is whatever needs or ought to be done or to happen. So whatever whatever needs to happen is going to happen. And whatever we need to do will be made to do. Whatever we need to do means whatever we have to do in accordance with our prarabdha. As he said in the in the um in the first sentence of a note he wrote for his mother, Avarabha Prarabdha Prakaram Adakanavan Angangirundu Artavipan. In accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, meaning in the heart of each one of us, will cause to dance. So whatever actions we need to do in accordance with our destiny, we will be made to do. 
because in order for us to experience our destiny, certain actions are necessary on our part. Those actions will be made to do. So those are among the carriers that God is making happening, is, is, is driving. So everything that is happening to us, he is, he is driving that. And everything that we need to do in, in order to experience what is happening to us, he will make us do. So those actions that he will make us do, we obviously can't avoid doing. But in addition to what um what he what we have to do in accordance with in accordance with our prarabdha we are doing so many other actions driven under the sway of our vasanas those are the actions we need to desist from so one of the ways to desist from it is to yield ourselves to that power to God is doing everything. God is, everything that is meant to happen is happening as it's meant to happen. If I'm to think any thought, let him make me think the thought. If I'm to say anything, let him make me say it. If I'm to do anything, let him make me do it. So we yield ourselves completely to him. By how do we do that? The answer is given in the first sentence of that paragraph. Being firmly established as oneself, not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought, except self-attentiveness alone is giving oneself to God. So we need to be cling to self-attentiveness so firmly, but we give no room for the rising of any other thought. That is giving ourselves to God. If we do that, then everything else he will make happen as it's meant to happen. So that is what surrender is all about. So this is how we give up both doership and both the Katrutva buddhi, the sense of doership, and the Katavya buddhi, the sense of uh, duty or obligation, I have to do this. Both we give up by clinging to our own being, I am. And mm. to illustrate what he says in this sentence, he gives the well-known analogy of the passenger traveling on the train. Though we know that the train is going bearing all the burdens, why should we, who go traveling in it, Instead of remaining happily, leaving our small luggage placed on the train, suffer bearing our luggage on our head. So our thinking, I have to do this, I have to do that, that is carrying our luggage on our, on our head. We don't have to do anything. All we have to do is to hold on to self-attentiveness. He will take care of everything else. He is driving all carriers. So we have to yield ourselves to him by clinging to self-attentiveness. That is the path he has shown us. Thank you, Michael. I do have a follow-up question, if that's yes, allowed. Yes, certainly. Okay. Um, so, the unfortunately, because we're we're still, at least I am, still living within the limitations of this body we and all are. <laughs> this mind, um, there are moments in our life where we have to decide whether we we are going to do something that we know we're being driven by our Vishaya Vasanas to do, but we have to decide. Um, and going by your answer, um, it would seem that it's going to happen whether we want it or not, if it needs to happen, but I mean, whether it needs to happen or it doesn't need to happen, but we're going to do it anyways, it's all being directed by Bhagwan. Yes. 
whatever we may decide, what is going to happen is going to happen. If uh, if we decide to do something, if it is meant to happen, it will happen. If it's not meant to happen, it's not going to happen. So we we actually, it seems to us, but we have, because we have this strong sense of doership, it seems to us, but we have to decide. Actually, we don't have to decide. Bhagavan says in the second sentence of the same paragraph I was just reading to you, he says, even though one places whatever amount of burden on God, that entire amount he will bear. So if you leave the burden of deciding what you should do or what you shouldn't do, leave that to him. He will bear it. Right. So um, he's see, asking us to surrender ourselves completely to him. The, the, the whole problem is but we are not doing so. All our questions arise because we are not we are not yet willing to let go of everything and surrender ourselves completely to him. Right. I think the 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 trouble for me at least is because we've I've been raised in this um you know traditional idea um of religion where where certain actions would upset God or <clears throat> certain things we do will sort of, you know, points will be struck down from our total score of good yeah, behavior. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, that And that idea is very difficult to beat out of our minds yes, because yes. we've been, we've grown up with that. Yes. So when, for example, this decision that I need to take if driven by my Vishaya Vasnas, I decide to go ahead and do it anyways, because then I will say, I am leaving it up to Bhagwan and I'm going to do this and he's going to make me do the right thing. Um, <laughs> if I do that, there will still be that feeling of shame while I do it, thinking, you know, what's Bhagwan going to think? <laughs> Yeah, regarding what you say about this idea, this um, this religious upbringing, which uh, many of us had have had some sort of religious upbringing, what is the ultimate aim of all religions? It is surrender, surrender of ourselves to God. So, if we are surrendering ourselves to God by clinging to self attentiveness, that is the ultimate good action. So right. we need we need to we need to have a firm conviction. But what God actually wants us to do is to surrender ourselves to Him. All these do's and don'ts are necessary. Why they're given for those who are not yet willing to surrender themselves to God. But when we are trying our best to surrender ourselves to God, that the, the do's and don'ts become irrelevant. Because the ultimate good is is surrender. Because surrender is the state where we don't rise as ego to do anything, where we leave everything to him. We surrender our mind, speech, and body to him. And the means to do so is to cling to self-attentiveness. Granted, we may not be doing this sufficiently, in fact, none of us are doing this sufficiently. That's why we're still here. But this is what we should be aiming for. And so long as we're aiming for this, we don't have to worry about good actions and bad actions. That is, automatically, if we are if we are drawn to this path of surrender, 
we will naturally be inclined to do actions that are classified by religions as good and disinclined to do actions that are classified as bad. So we don't have to worry about these good and bad actions. The ultimate good, the greatest good, is surrender. Thank you. I don't, think really any, I don't think any religion teaches that there's a higher goal than surrender. I don't know of any religion, and I would question the, the truth of that religion if it says that there's <laughs> a, a higher goal than surrender. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the, the, that list of good deeds and bad deeds that were handed out when you know, we're yeah. brought into a tradition that that kind of confuses the mind because then it seems yeah. like we're the ones who need to decide what is good and what is bad and follow yeah. all of those rules. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Um, this is really well, all thanks to because, Bhagavan because I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has said. And I, I've just been so confused about this thing that I need to do. And, um, you know, it's it's really um, affecting my practice on a Having daily basis. come to Bhagavan, there's only one thing we need to do, surrender ourselves. And the most effective means to surrender ourselves, as he points out in the first sentence of that paragraph, is to cling firmly to self-attentiveness. Because when we cling to self-attentiveness, ego thereby subsides. And the subsidence of ego is giving ourselves to God. Thank you, Michael. And right. as an end note, I'm I'm really glad to see that you're on the mend. Um, sorry to hear that. You're Everything on the... is given by Bhagavan. The illness is given by Bhagavan. The health is given by Bhagavan. So <laughs> whatever he gives is good. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, last question. Um, there, uh, I think it's Catalina wants um, a, a slight explanation. I know we were discussing later, so we probably don't need to go into the depth. Um, regarding verse 19 of Upadesa Panipakal. Um, so I'm just going to read your translation there. What is experienced as shanti or peace in inward look itself is what is experienced as shakti, power, by outward look. So for those who investigate and know, they are one. So that's the verse. So I'm just going to read the question. The shanti part is clear, but how do we experience shakti when we look outwards? Can you please clarify this? <clears throat> Saduam used to give a nice uh, analogy to illustrate the meaning of this verse. Supposing you have uh, a dam, a dam that is it's been a very strong dam is built to hold back the water. So long as the dam is doing its work, the water is in the in the reservoir is calm, peaceful. If, if there's a slight crack in the dam, the water in the dam starts oozing out. And the more, the, 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 the more it oozes out, the wider the crack becomes. So eventually the whole dam gets washed away and all the water comes out. But when the, when the water is, 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 um, is, breaks its way out of the dam in that way, that seems to be a tremendous... Um, display of power. That is, that water will sweep down the valley, it'll destroy houses, villages, towns, factories, so many things will be destroyed by that great power. But which is a greater power? That power that is released 
or the power of the dam that is holding the water in place. The, the peaceful state of the reservoir is the highest power. It is a it is a only when that when the strength of the dam is weakened, but that power manifests itself. So all of this creation is just a, a display of not of power but of weakness. The, the true power is the power of just being as we actually are. That is what Bhagavan is referring to here. But what he refers to as the power that when looked outwards, that is the power, the supreme power, the power just to be as we actually are. Thank you, Michael. When when we when we allow ego to rise, that is equivalent to the cracking of the dam. And when ego rises, everything rises. A big flood is there. Yeah, because it the... because it manifests in the form of the rising of ego and the appearance of it, it seems to be so much power. But the greatest power is the power of just being as we actually are. So power and peace are one and the same thing. The supreme power is the power of just peacefully being as we are. Does that adequately answer that question? Yeah, um, actually, yeah, that, that, that was my question. Is It was a mistake with somebody else, but you explained it beautiful. Thank you. Okay, right. Thank you. Very good, Michael. Thank you. So um, with that, we will um, adjourn today's session and I uh, will see you next month for verse 12 of um, Ulladana Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya. <laughs>